The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. This is where it all gets real. It's Thursday, January 25th, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through the links for my sponsors and the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. As of this week, we have reached a dramatic and fairly ominous moment in America's history. The question of whether the president's campaign played a part in Russia's election interference has finally led to the doors of the Oval Office. While the clock is already ticking on another expensive shutdown of the U.S. government. And we'll get deeply into those vital issues in short order, but... There is no story in the news more important than this one, even if it only underscores what we already detected. Of all the wealth generated on this planet last year, 82% of it went to just 1% of the population, according to the latest figures from Oxfam. None of it went to the bottom 50%. None of it. This new wealth, new money, is going more than ever to the same old place, to the already wealthy, specifically to the top 1%. The rich got richer last year at six times the pace of the worker, whose wages went up only 2% last year, more than 12% for the rich. It now takes a garment worker in Bangladesh a lifetime to earn what a top fashion CEO makes in four days. In the U.S., a CEO earns in a day or so what an ordinary worker makes in a year. Oxfam says that if the world's wealthy were to let go of just over $2 billion a year between them, it would give 2.5 million Vietnamese workers a living wage, something they don't have now, as one example. Quoting the executive director of Oxfam International, the people who make our clothes, assemble our phones, and grow our food are being exploited to swell the profits of corporations and billionaire investors. The expression, the rich get richer, has been around a long time but it's never been as true as it is today and at a growing pace. This new Oxfam report is titled Reward Work, Not Wealth. That, of course, would require a change in the rules. Major revelations in the Russia investigation just keep coming, and Tuesday of this week may go down in history as the day it became clear that the Russia investigation is on the home stretch and racing to the finish line. And it's led to the president himself. The White House says that in the coming weeks, he'll answer questions from Robert Mueller's investigators. The conversation between White House lawyers and Mueller's started before Christmas and continues, focusing mainly on the question of whether Trump can field written questions with written answers. Prosecutors of all stripes agree Mueller will listen to the reasoning of Trump's lawyers, but will likely insist on a face-to-face. Prosecutors like to see faces and body language when they question a witness. Mueller, say his colleagues, is no exception. Still, for now, the White House says it's on, and the two sides expect to have settled the written Q&A thing by next week, even though Trump friend Roger Stone calls it a suicide mission, a perjury trap. Stay tuned. If Trump decides not to face Mueller or refuses to answer certain questions face-to-face, Mueller can subpoena him to testify for a grand jury where Trump would have to answer truthfully or plead the fifth. Either way, he could face criminal charges. The same treatment Bill Clinton got. Today, Jeff Sessions, Reince Priebus, Hope Hicks, Stephen Miller, and even White House lawyer Don McGahn face that same peril as they, too, have been interviewed by the special counsel's office. Each of them holds or has held some of the most important jobs in government— 
Four of Trump's top advisors are already facing federal charges, and there may now be as many as four people in Trump's campaign who are now cooperating with investigators. Mueller's interviewed the CIA director, the head of the National Security Agency, the director of national intelligence, the former FBI director, the attorney general, and the former acting attorney general. Mueller has talked with Trump's past and present advisors, and now he's ready to hear from the president. As of last night, Trump said he was looking forward to speaking to Mueller under oath that he'd love to in two or three weeks, depending on what his own lawyers have to say. Trump may not realize that by offering to speak under oath, he's actually offering to testify for a grand jury. His lawyer came out later to say that's not what he meant, that what he meant to say was that he's willing to talk with Mueller if the two sides, if the two sides can successfully negotiate the terms. Trump says he wasn't obstructing justice, just fighting back, defending himself. He may also not understand the legal definition of obstruction. Bob Mueller may disagree with Trump's assessment. Stuff just got very real, and it's all unnervingly serious. This week, we learned that special counsel Robert Mueller's investigators grilled Attorney General Jeff Sessions for several hours last week. Sessions is the first member of the Trump cabinet to be interviewed in the Mueller probe. As head of the Justice Department, Sessions recused himself from that investigation since he was also a possible target of it having had contact with a Russian official while working on the Trump campaign and having lied about those contacts. Sessions' recusal has been the focus of public and private anger from Trump, who lost most of his control over the investigation with that recusal. Trump believes it is the attorney general's duty to protect his president and that Sessions has failed to do that. Mueller is investigating both the Trump campaign's contact with Russians and possible obstruction of justice by the president in several ways, but primarily in the firing of FBI Director James Comey. As head of the Department of Justice, Sessions was heavily involved in Comey's firing. And Sessions reportedly did not tell Trump about his Mueller interview afterward, indicating Sessions may now be cooperating with Mueller, along with the criminally charged former National Security Advisor Mike Flynn and former campaign foreign policy advisor George Papadopoulos. CNN reports... That former Trump campaign aide Rick Gates has hired a lawyer, which indicates Gates is likely negotiating with Mueller for a deal to talk. The lawyer is Tom Green, who got his start defending a Nixon official in the Watergate investigation decades ago. And Mueller, we found out this week, had also interviewed James Comey last year about the memos Comey had written about his interactions with Trump. Again, shoring up the evidence that Mueller is focused on the serious crime of obstructing justice by the president. In the next few weeks, Mueller's team will also interview former top Trump advisor Steve Bannon, who does not appear to be under investigation, but who's motivated to cooperate after his career was destroyed by Trump. Bannon, we've learned, will also be asked about the firing of James Comey and Mike Flynn in that obstruction of justice probe. The current FBI director, by the way, is still on the job, but under tremendous pressure from the president by way of Jeff Sessions. Right after Trump fired Comey, he called the acting director into his office for a get-to-know-you meeting. And right after the two exchanged the typical greetings, Trump reportedly got right to the point, allegedly asking Andrew McCabe, so who'd you vote for? McCabe answered that he didn't vote in the 2016 election. Trump then reportedly vented some anger at McCabe because McCabe's wife had run as a Democrat for Congress the year before and in the process got a campaign donation from a friend of Clinton's. For Trump, as always, it was about loyalty to him. 
And the Washington Post reports that conversation between Trump and McCabe is now of interest to special counsel Robert Mueller. The news website Axios reports Robert Ray threatened to resign as FBI director after pressure to fire his deputy director, Andrew McCabe. Ray not only refused to fire McCabe, but Ray said he would quit if McCabe was fired from above. The Trump White House, however, was fearful of starting another firestorm after losing a second FBI director. Trump reportedly wanted McCabe fired because of McCabe's close relationship with James Comey. McCabe is actually eligible for retirement any day now. But before he goes, he's picked Dana Bente as the FBI's new top lawyer. That's a hard jab back at Trump since it was Trump and Jeff Sessions who had fired Bente from his job as a U.S. attorney. It was Bente who'd played a key role in the prosecution of former Trump National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. He's back. Oh, and the girlfriend of former Trump campaign foreign policy advisor George Papadopoulos has also been interviewed by the Mueller team. Simona Mangianti says George will be remembered as the John Dean of the Trump-Russia affair. John Dean was the early 70s White House aide who told Nixon there was a cancer on the presidency and then later told the Senate Watergate Committee almost everything it needed to know to drive a president out of office. Just as the Nixon team had badmouthed John Dean, Team Trump has badmouthed Papadopoulos. Trump's called him a low-level volunteer and a proven liar. A Trump advisor called George a coffee boy. But his girlfriend Simona says George was no coffee boy and that he will likely be a key witness in this investigation. He's on the right side of history, she says, but says Mueller's investigators told her to say nothing more specific than that. Earlier this month, California Democrat Dianne Feinstein took it upon herself to do what her committee wouldn't, publish its interview with the guy who hired Christopher Steele. Fusion GPS founder Glenn Simpson had told the Senate Judiciary Committee that Steele, who had been gathering opposition research on Trump finances, feared that Trump was the target of Russian blackmail. Over the course of 10 hours, Simpson told Senate investigators he believed that what he had seen in watching Trump and Trump's people, including son-in-law Jared Kushner, Steele believed he was witnessing a crime in progress, a crime that compromised U.S. national security. He'd found connections to organized crime, including Russian mob figures. Simpson said much the same thing to the House Intelligence Committee, which, unlike the Judiciary Committee in the Senate, voted unanimously to release the transcript of its interview with Simpson. Simpson spent six hours with the House investigators, telling them that, among other things, he was motivated to tell the public what he and Steele had found after FBI Director James Comey revealed the Clinton investigation that turned up nothing while not revealing the Trump investigation that has since expanded. Simpson says the press and the public needed to know because he felt that what the Steele dossier had revealed, the information it had collected, was historic. Quoting Simpson, we were, you know, very scared for the country and for ourselves and felt that if we could give it to someone else, we should. And although neither the House nor Senate committees have the prosecution powers of special counsel Mueller, they now have made 16 hours of Simpson interviews available to the press, the public, and to Robert Mueller. Another dramatic revelation in the Russia probe over this past week came from journalists. They found that the FBI is investigating whether the NRA used Russian money to support the Trump candidacy. It came from two reporters for McClatchy, a big regional newspaper chain now owned by Knight Ritter. The reporters confirmed that the feds are investigating whether a big Russian banker close to the Kremlin funneled money to the NRA specifically to help the Trump election effort. 
using foreign money to influence U.S. elections is illegal. Naturally, the FBI's findings so far are also in Bob Mueller's hands as he investigates money laundering, possible collusion between Russia and the Trump campaign, and apparent intermediaries like the National Rifle Association. During the campaign, Trump promoted NRA causes. It's estimated the NRA spent 55 to $70 million to help Trump three times what it had spent promoting Mitt Romney in 2012. And the aforementioned Russian banker Alexander Torshin is also under investigation in Spain for money laundering. Two more big developments in the Russia probe, more validation of the Steele dossier through two days of congressional testimony, and the revelation that the NRA may have acted as a financial go-between for the Russians and the Trump campaign. After their part in Russian election meddling, they're trying to save face at Facebook and Twitter. Facebook now says its users have a way to check to see if they have looked at any of the bogus news items or ads that were planted last year by Russian trolls. At least users can find out if they had liked any of those ads or fake stories. The new tool doesn't work on phones, just desktop and laptop computers. Facebook says it's also trying to be more transparent about what happened in 2016, that it's taken down fake accounts set up by the Russian troll farm known as the Internet Research Agency. Twitter, meanwhile, plans to tell its users if they interacted with Russian accounts. Twitter also promises to be vigilant in the future, shutting down accounts that are manned by machines or bots. After its initial claim of only 200 Russian accounts, Twitter now says there were nearly 4,000, sending out nearly 200,000 tweets. Most of the tweets were aimed at promoting arguments between Americans, but over 50,000 dealt directly with the Trump-Clinton race. CNN says several members of the Trump administration and one member of the Trump family interacted with those Russian accounts. White House advisor Kellyanne Conway even retweeted from a Russian site that was designed to look like the page of Tennessee's Republican Party. Twitter says it plans to stay one step ahead of abusers in the run-up to this year's election. Critics say Facebook needs to catch up to Twitter and that both need to do much more to stop the interference that continued this week as Russian bots tweeted out hashtag Schumer shutdown. And it continues today with the hashtag release the memo. What memo? This one. Republicans continue to try to derail the Russia investigation at all levels. House Intelligence Committee Chairman Devin Nunes, another Trump campaigner, has with his staff written a memorandum that supposedly outlines abuses by the U.S. intelligence agencies. It was Nunes who peddled Trump's claim he'd been wiretapped by Obama, a claim solidly and repeatedly disproven. So, does that Republican memo to discredit the intelligence community contain evidence? Or is it just politics? Since Republicans refuse to show their memo to the FBI, it would appear to be just politics. Besides, it would be a serious federal crime to give the FBI false information. More than 150 House lawmakers have seen the memo, and the Democrats among them say it is no more than a list of Republican talking points attacking the FBI. With more on the Republican effort to discredit the Russia probe, here's Salon.com's Bob Seska. Thank you, Buzz. You might have noticed that the congressional Republicans have amped up their efforts to undermine the integrity of the FBI and the special counsel's investigation. The latest chapter in the Trumpers deep state coup narrative has arrived and it goes a little like this. They're focusing on text messages by an FBI agent named Peter Strzok. 
while at the same time the embattled chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Devin Nunes, apparently authored a memo in which he claims to have uncovered alleged anti-Trump surveillance abuses inside the FBI. Of course, it's all horseshit, partially manufactured by the Republicans, in cahoots with Fox News Channel. We'll get into the why presently. The struck matter might be considered a problem given how mouthy he was in text exchanges with Lisa Page, another employee at the Bureau. However, one thing you won't hear too often on AM talk radio or in Trump's Twitter feed is that Strzok was summarily removed from the FBI's investigation of Trump-Russia back in July after the FBI's Office of the Inspector General caught wind of the texts. In other words, the FBI, not the Republicans or Lou Dobbs or Devin Nunes, discovered what Strzok was up to and demoted him for it. That should be the first sign that this text message thing is a weak attempt to out a guy who was already outed by the FBI. The thumbnail goes a little like this. Strzok apparently exchanged text messages with Page that weren't particularly pro-Trump. Then again, Strzok also texted anti-Hillary Clinton remarks as well. Indeed, Strzok had a lot to say about politicians from both sides of the aisle. But what the Republicans are focused on this week is a single message dated just after the 2016 election in which Page, not Strzok, texted, quote, Are you even going to give out your calendars? Seems kind of depressing. Maybe it should just be the first meeting of the secret society. End quote. Congressman Trey Gowdy appeared on Fox News this week, equipped with news of this secret society thing, even though the words perhaps in the text message suggest it was a bureaucratic joke or a lighthearted throwaway text. Gowdy returned to Fox News the next day and wasn't as sure about his assessment of the message's meaning, telling Fox News audiences, quote, Now, I have no clue what that means, unquote. Also on Tuesday, Senator Ron Johnson announced that the Republicans have an informant inside the FBI who told them about a series of off-site meetings. That's it. Shocking, I know, for FBI agents to meet in locations other than in their offices, right? But now they're attempting to link the secret society text with their so-called informant's word of off-site meetings. Seriously, this is how flimsy their Strzok story is. Oh, and now the Trumpers are crapping their cages over the fact that a bunch of Strzok text messages were lost in what the FBI is calling a bureau-wide technical glitch, impacting thousands of the FBI's devices between September 2016 and May 2017. This is where the president jumped in this week, completely inventing the notion that 50,000 text messages were deleted. He's clearly lying. No one knows how many texts were lost. No one. Meanwhile, there's this mysterious Nunes memo. It's mysterious because we don't know what's in it. Nunes refuses to release it for some reason, despite the fact that everyone from Don Jr. to thousands of Russian trolls and bots have circulated the release the memo hashtag. Nunes also refuses to deliver a copy to the FBI, even though it's entirely about the FBI. Odd, right? Nevertheless, we at least know it's about surveillance abuses against, apparently, the Trump team. It's important to retrace what this could be. We've heard through various press reports that a roster of Trump people, including Mike Flynn and Jared Kushner, were picked up in conversations with Russian operatives who were targets of FBI surveillance, permitted under Section 702 of the FISA Amendments Act of 2008. Not to get too splainy about it, but let's keep in mind that the F in FISA stands for foreign. Section 702 allows the intelligence community to collect communications from overseas or foreign targets without a warrant. Simultaneously, the process also sweeps up any communications from quote-unquote U.S. persons with whom the foreign targets are chatting. 
However, the personally identifying details of U.S. persons must be minimized, which includes redacting names and other identifying information. With a proper warrant from the FISA court, though, those U.S. persons can be revealed to investigators. This appears to be what happened with the Trump people. In the real world, it's obvious the Trumpers were communicating with Russian targets and others, so investigators engaged the proper channels to reveal the names of the Trump people. We'll likely find out that there was a court order allowing it. But the Republicans would have us believe, possibly within the Nunes memo, that the FBI was illegally surveilling Flynn and the others because they say the FBI hates Trump. Plus, the secret society, the missing texts, and all the rest of the crap all other ginning up. All of this just bleeds desperation. It's all so pathetic, like a bungling criminal who's defending himself in court by announcing that he's putting the system on trial. More specifically, it tells us that Mueller might be really damn close to collecting more scalps. And it leads me to believe Trump and his inner circle aren't the only government officials who are badly compromised. There's really no other explanation. Why else would sitting members of Congress put their reputations on the line in order to defend a feckless one-term buffoon like Trump? Why else would they go to war against the U.S. intelligence community, perhaps making themselves a target as well? Ultimately, if Trump is so innocent, why are his lieutenants going to such great lengths to obstruct the investigation, including a war against federal law enforcement? The GOP counterattack aside, why aren't Trump and his lawyers being more transparent about their records and therefore their innocence? If the president's so clean, let's see his tax returns. Let's have a public audit of his business finances. Hell, maybe Trump should volunteer to answer Mueller's question in public and on live television. Let's have a full public accounting of the Trump team's emails and texts, especially knowing how loudly Trump's been demanding to see both Strzok's, Page's, and Hillary Clinton's messages. No, everything they've done, including this deep state coup nonsense, makes them appear even guiltier than before. The scope of Mueller's prosecutorial mission should be growing larger by the hour. They say the cover-up is worse than the crime. Today, the cover-up extends beyond the White House and down Pennsylvania Avenue to the offices of the House and Senate Republicans. The American people deserve to know why they're doing this. It's not just politics at this point. It's far deeper and more sinister. And we must demand answers. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thanks, Bob. Get more of him at Salon.com and Tuesdays and Thursdays on the Bob Seska Show at RealmNetwork.com. Join me with him there every Tuesday. A first look at the next election. Net neutrality lives. Trump drives up the price of washing machines and the high cost of words. After this. Listening is the new reading. And Audible.com is your best online audio bookstore with the biggest selection of digital audiobooks. Bestsellers like Fire and Fury, Big Little Lies, Hidden Figures, and Trevor Noah's Born a Crime. You don't even need an internet connection to listen, so you can listen anywhere. And there are no interruptions. Audible books are ad-free, and you won't lose your place even if you switch devices. There's no equipment to buy. Just download the free app. Because Audible.com is an Amazon company, you can count on privacy, security, and satisfaction. You can sign in securely with your Amazon account. And if you don't like a book, you can exchange it for another free. As a member, you'll get a credit each month for a free book, any book, regardless of price, and exclusive to members' discounts of 30%. Membership is just $14.95 a month, a library for about what you'd pay for a book. And you can cancel anytime and keep your books. Even if you shop Amazon elsewhere, this podcast gets a small commission if you join Audible through the link at buzzburbank.com. 
Just click the Audible link on my webpage just below the list of my recent shows. Thanks for choosing Audible through me and for supporting this free news through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. And now some news about the next elections, this year and beyond. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court has given that key voting state less than a month to redraw its congressional district boundaries with the first primaries there set for May 15th. The court found that the way the map had been drawn by the Republican Pennsylvania legislature clearly violates the state's constitution and plainly and measurably puts Democrats at a disadvantage. That disadvantage stands out in a breakdown of the Keystone State's congressional makeup. Of Pennsylvania's 18 seats in Washington, 13 are Republican, even though Trump won the state by less than a point in the last election. Redrawing those maps further increases the chances for those districts to flip blue in the midterm vote this fall in what was already a swing state. Because this was a state Supreme Court ruling, it's less likely to be overturned in federal courts, as was the case in North Carolina. Still, the war on extreme gerrymandering continues in states around the country. Thousands marched in one town and another and another and another across the country over the weekend. There were two days of women's marches around the world, millions worldwide, protesting the first anniversary of the Trump administration and to take a stand against sexual harassment, abuse, and discrimination. A third of a million people turned out in Chicago on Sunday, which was also the anniversary of last year's record-setting women's march. This year's wasn't quite as big, but almost. 600,000 showed up in L.A., 200,000 in frigid New York, tens of thousands marched in other big cities, thousands marched in mid-sized towns from coast to coast in red and blue states. They marched in Las Vegas and in the Carolinas, 14,000 turned out in Knoxville, Tennessee. They ran into white nationalists there, of course, but the protesters prevailed and no one got hurt this time. A thousand people turned out in just one suburb of Miami. They marched in Phoenix and Orlando and Topeka, Kansas, Oakland, San Diego, Milwaukee, Denver, Dallas, and Montgomery, Alabama. Millions marched in nearly three dozen countries around the globe, including London, Paris, Berlin, and Sydney. But here in the States, they marched with another common purpose to get at least a million more people to register to vote before the midterm election that's now just 10 months away. They carried signs, including, grab him by the midterms. If you were planning to install solar panels, the price just went up thanks to a new tax from Trump. If you have carefully selected your next washing machine and it's made in some other country, the price just went up by 50 bucks. As president, Trump has just slapped severe tariffs on imported washing machines and solar energy panels and solar energy cells. He may soon impose similar taxes on imported steel, aluminum, and other products from China and our presumed ally South Korea. That could drive up the prices on U.S.-made washing machines and all the other things made from aluminum and steel. It's Trump's America First initiative, the one that's alienated countries around the world and is now driving up prices and likely eliminating jobs. If the solar panels are too expensive, the Americans who would be paid to install them won't get paid at all. The new import tariff is 30%, and it's a serious blow to this country's solar industry and its energy and environmental futures. So this is the age in which we live. Greg Daniels of the New York Times wrote this after a porn star drew a big crowd in Greenville, South Carolina over the weekend. 
Here in Greenville, as the second year of Trump dawned, Stormy Daniels spread out a taupe fleece blanket on stage, dropped to her knees, arched her back, and began to squirt a bottle of lotion onto her chest to the sound of Animal by Def Leppard as the president's face flashed on video screens behind her. This is the age in which we live. Since the report last week about a payment from Trump to porn star Stormy Daniels to keep quiet about an extramarital affair, both the woman and the White House have been contradicted by the porn star herself. The gossip rag In Touch magazine has been sitting for years on an interview it did with Daniels in 2011, right after the Wall Street Journal report about the hush money passed between lawyers in Touch published that interview. In it, Stormy Daniels confirms the two had sex in 2006, four months after the future First Lady Melania Trump gave birth to their son Barron, who's now 11. Both Daniels and the White House have dismissed the alleged affair, but now it's been confirmed by the other woman who claims Trump said she reminded him of his daughter. The Wall Street Journal found evidence of a $130,000 payment from Trump's lawyer to the attorney for Stormy Daniels. And that's why the government watchdog group Common Cause is calling on the feds to investigate the source of that $130,000 payment. If the money came from Trump himself, then attorney Michael Cohen was merely the funnel through which the money passed. But if the money came from Cohen himself or anyone else, it could be an illegal campaign contribution aimed at influencing the outcome of the 2016 election. Common Cause says there are actually several possible campaign violations it says should be investigated by the Federal Election Commission and the Justice Department. Common Cause says the American people deserve transparency. The Trumps observed their 13th wedding anniversary Monday over a low-key dinner the next day. The White House announced Melania would not be joining the president after all on his current trip to Davos, Switzerland for an economic summit. Donald Trump's latest and most vulgar racist comments have not been forgotten, but they've been forced out of the top stories by the predictable onslaught of other controversies. A week ago today, House Democrats introduced a resolution to censure Trump for his remarks. A censure is the congressional way of scolding a government official and to permanently record that scolding. House Speaker Paul Ryan hasn't and won't schedule a vote on that resolution. But Trump's remarks have not been forgotten and in the context of other stories still ring, especially in the country of Haiti, one of the countries the president called a shithole. Trump's Homeland Security Department has announced it will now block all people in Haiti and two other countries from even applying for temporary visas. The other two countries are Belize and Samoa. A humanitarian group says Trump's Border Patrol agents are destroying water jugs that have been left in the desert along the Mexican border. The group No More Deaths has video of U.S. Border Patrol agents kicking one-gallon plastic jugs of water spilling their contents. More than 3,000 gallons worth of water placed by Americans trying to curb the number of immigrant deaths. The Border Patrol says it does not condone this activity and that agents could face corrective action if caught. Last year, border agents were accused of launching vehicle attacks, dog attacks, and beatings against people crossing the border. And then there's Trump's choice to run AmeriCorps and the other government service programs. He's gone now, after less than six months on the job, when CNN found disparaging remarks Carl Higby had made about veterans with PTSD, blacks, gays, women, undocumented immigrants, and Muslims. Quoting Higby, I just don't like Muslim people. He also said, I just don't like gay people, I just don't. And that he thought border crossers should be shot in the face. 
Higby said veterans with PTSD have weak minds and that many of them are faking it. He has now resigned. A Trump Homeland Security official had to resign in November after linking blacks to laziness and promiscuity. And Trump's ambassador to the Netherlands had to apologize after spreading falsehoods about Muslims in that country. And the list goes on. President persists provoking Palestine. It was early December when Trump announced the U.S. now recognizes Jerusalem as Israel's capital, changing decades of American policy, which long recognized Jerusalem as a city shared with the Palestinians. Trump also announced he's moving the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem to underscore an American commitment to his new policy and to Israel. Initially, the embassy move was to take place as many as nine years from now. This week, Vice President Mike Pence was in Israel telling that country's lawmakers the move will take place next year. Since that early December announcement, Palestinian leaders have announced they will no longer take part in peace talks that involve the United States, and protesters appeared increasingly and with violence. Palestinians snubbed Pence, refusing to meet with him during his Middle East tour. An Arab lawmaker in the Israeli lawmaking body calls Pence, quote, a dangerous man with a messianic mission that includes the destruction of the entire region. Pence is known as an enthusiastically devout Christian. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu calls Pence a dear friend. Under Donald Trump, the world's view of U.S. leadership is at an all-time low, not surprisingly. The U.S. under Trump now ranks behind China in a worldwide Gallup poll. This year's survey covered 134 countries. The world gave the U.S. a 48% approval rating under President Obama. Under Trump, it has plummeted 18 points to 30%. Approval of U.S. leadership in the U.K. has dropped 26%, where 63% of British people disapprove of Trump. In Canada, U.S. approval has fallen from 49% under Obama to 24% under Trump. Worldwide, more people disapprove of Trump's America than approve of it. Trump's reneging on trade agreements and the Paris Climate Accord join his xenophobic rhetoric and abrasive personality as the reasons for that fall. Gallup pollsters say they suspect the vote this year was more about Trump than about the U.S. the world has known up till now. In a survey by U.S. News & World Report, the U.S. dropped a notch on the list of the world's best countries, down to eighth place, Switzerland is number one, Canada's in second place, Germany took third place, pushing Britain down a notch to fourth. The U.S. now ranks below Japan, Sweden, and Australia, and beats out only the Netherlands among the top ten. The U.S. is down a notch on this list for the second straight year. Among world leaders, Trump ranks at the bottom with Vladimir Putin. Trump's first year didn't play well here at home either, as in Canada and in the U.K. More voters here disapprove of this president than approve. The latest Wall Street Journal-NBC News poll shows Trump's disapproval rating among voters to be 57%. Unlike other presidents, there was no honeymoon period for Trump. He so far averaged 10 points below previous presidents. Only 39% approve barely over one in three of us, and the lowest mark ever reached by any president in his first year. Trump's already as unpopular as Nixon and as George W. Bush was in his last three years. And of the 57% who disapprove of Trump, 51% disapprove strongly. Just over a quarter of us strongly approve of Trump. One said he's amazed at how much Trump's accomplished in just a year. 
Another said Trump's doing the best he can in the face of opposition from the media, Democrats, and even Republicans. But even in this economy, the majority view of Trump is dim. In fact, the latest Gallup poll shows that a majority of Americans credit this booming economy to Obama, not Trump. And then there's the turnover in the Trump administration in that first year, a turnover rate twice as high as any of the five men who served before him. In the first year of the Trump administration, we saw a 34% turnover rate compared to W's 6% turnover rate. The list of names has become too long to repeat. Based on history, there's traditionally even more turnover in a presidency in its second year. What a long, strange trip it's been, that first year of Trump. You may have already forgotten some of the oddities, so, chronologically, it went from Sean Spicer's false claim of the biggest inaugural crowd ever to Sean Spicer in the Rose Garden bushes just before he was fired, to the Kafefi tweet, to the quick coming and going of Anthony Scaramucci, from Trump's bizarre speech to the Boy Scouts, to the very good people in a white supremacy march, Trump in the fire truck, and his declaration as a very stable genius. There's so much more, of course, and it's all as noteworthy as it is strange. Some Trump supporters, meanwhile, appear ready to take up arms against the free press he has monotonously referred to as fake news. Disturbingly, Brandon Greisimer of Novia, Michigan, was walking the streets again, out on bond after threatening to kill the on-air talent at Trump's prime target, CNN. Fake news, Greisimer allegedly said when he made one of his nearly two dozen calls to the CNN switchboard. I'm coming to gun you all down. F you, effing N-words. F you, he repeated for emphasis, adding, I am coming to kill you. Three minutes after that call, it appeared to be Greisimer again on the line. I am on my way right now to gun the effing CNN cast down. F you, he repeated a couple more times before also repeating, I am coming to kill you. About a half hour later, another call. I'm coming for you, CNN. I'm smarter than you, more powerful than you. I have more guns than you, more manpower. Your cast, he said, is about to get gunned down in a matter of hours. And in the fourth threatening call, the CNN operator was told, you are going down. I have a gun and I'm coming to Georgia right now to go to the CNN headquarters to effing gun every single last one of you. I have a team of people. It's going to be great, man. You got to get prepared for this one, buddy. The FBI arrested Greisimer on charges of using interstate communications with intent to extort, threaten, or injure. He was in court for this last Friday and then released on a $10,000 unsecured bond. Quoting Greisimer's dad, he didn't really mean any of it. We're not even gun owners. We don't have any, and neither does he. Perhaps this week, Brandon Greisimer of Novi, Michigan, understands the power and danger of words, even if the president does not. The president who gives fake news awards and posts videos of him wrestling CNN to the ground and of trains slamming into CNN. For Trump has not yet understood the power of a president's words. He may someday, perhaps if someone who has a gun follows his lead. If Congress doesn't get around to reinstating net neutrality, then your state could do what Montana has already done. Its governor has issued an executive order to keep net neutrality, to require net neutrality within Montana's borders. AT&T, Verizon, and Charter will have to go along if they want to keep their lucrative contracts with the state. Other states are watching and learning. Lawmakers in six states, maybe yours, have introduced bills that would do what Montana's Democratic governor did with the stroke of a pen. 
Nearly two dozen states are suing the FCC for its decision to kill net neutrality. But quoting Montana's governor, there's been a lot of talk around the country about how to respond to the recent decision to repeal rules that keep the Internet free and open. It's time, he said, to actually do something about it. And we now know why the governor of Hawaii waited so long to correct the state's recent false alert about an incoming missile. The first all-clear came from Congresswoman Talisi Gabbard. But Hawaii Governor David Ige knew two minutes after the alert it was a false alarm, yet it took him another 15 minutes to tweet the words, there is no missile threat. The reason? He couldn't log on to Twitter because he didn't know his own password. He says he has since corrected that. Although Eyes hasn't said, he may have had the same trouble with his Facebook account since he was 23 minutes after the fact on that one. But even with those delays, the state's governor still got out the word before the state's emergency management agency did. It, too, has been making changes to assure there are no more false alarms. And by 23 days into the new year, we had our 11th school shooting. It came Tuesday at a high school in small-town Kentucky. One every other day. The ninth and 10th shootings were the day before at schools in Dallas and New Orleans. The 8th was on a school bus in Iowa. The 7th was on a Southern California college campus. The 6th at a high school in Seattle. Some were suicides. Others were multiple shootings. And the countdown continues back to the first few days of 2018. But Tuesday was the worst shooting of the past month. Two 15-year-olds were killed, 14 wounded, and four others trampled in the panic prompted by gunfire. Quoting a mother's gun safety group, there's a lot going on, but you would think that shootings in American schools would clear away some of that clutter. A former FBI official says Americans have become numb from these shootings, and quoting her, I think it will continue. Former Olympic gymnast Dr. Larry Nasser has been sentenced to up to 175 years in prison. That's on top of the 60 years he'd already been given on charges of child pornography. I have just signed your death warrant, said the judge after sentencing. Before sentencing, Nasser offered an apology of sorts, saying he would live with his victim's words for the rest of his life. Before that, he'd been forced to listen to 156 of his victims after pleading that he be spared that fate. And just before sentencing, the judge told the doctor she would not let him treat her dogs. Over at Michigan State University, where Nasser was the sports doctor for over 20 years, the school's president has now resigned. The student loan crisis you heard so much about last year didn't just go away. In fact, a new report from the nonpartisan Brookings Institute predicts that 40% of the college students who started classes in 2004 are likely to default on their loans within the next five years. The highest default rates, of course, are among those who attended for-profit colleges. Nearly 7 out of 10 of them will likely default, driving up the average. Still, just over one in four of the 2004 enrollees will also likely default. Quoting the author of this nonpartisan report from this nonpartisan think tank, this effort needs to look a lot more like what the Obama administration was doing. That would include rules requiring schools to be held accountable for the percentage of grads who don't land jobs with the educations they got. An Obama-era type effort would also let students ask that loans be forgiven in the case of schools that manipulated or fraudulently recruited them. But the report also recommends denying loans to students without first assessing their chances for success in higher education. In the meantime, the debts and defaults continue. Even among college graduates who started in 2004, 
nearly half of them had already defaulted by 2016. A ton of worthwhile showbiz news. Taco Bell burns to the ground and which way to Bob's house? In the third and final segment, up next. Valentine's Day is barely over two weeks away. Why not make sure you're covered? With ProFlowers.com, you can schedule their gift ahead of time, any date you wish, and get back to your life. It's a special gift of beauty right to their door without costing a fortune. And with ProFlowers, it's always a perfect gift, guaranteed fresh for seven days or your money back, and they're not kidding. I've used ProFlowers time and again, and they never let me or her down. She's always delighted when that box from Pro Flowers arrives at her door. And right now, because you listen to this report, you can save 10 bucks on any order of $29 or more if you enter the code REALM when you check out at ProFlowers.com. Flowers for as little as 19 bucks when you type in the code R-E-L-M in the upper right corner. And that $10 off also applies to a range of flowers and plants, including a dozen red roses or their famous 100 Blooms bouquet. And if you do forget a birthday or anniversary or forget just about anything, apologize with flowers, save 10 bucks, and help power this show with the code R-E-L-M at ProFlowers.com. Thank you for using my sponsors and for also supporting this free news through that PayPal button at BuzzBurbank.com. Sometimes good things happen. A new scientific study has found a blood test that can detect eight types of cancer and the test gives its most accurate results for five cancers for which there currently is no blood test. This new test is up to 98% accurate in those five previously untestable types, esophageal, stomach, liver, pancreatic, and ovarian. The new test has respectable accuracy in breast, lung, and colon cancer as well. The goal is a test that can check even more accurately for even more cancers, but progress is being made. This is important because early detection is key in fighting cancer. Even deadly cancers, when found early, can lead to treatments that lead to a longer, more comfortable life. And this new test, Cancer Seek, does what no other test can do. It pinpoints which cancer and where it is in the body. Doctors and scientists continue to look for the reason the death rate in the United States has stopped going down and why life expectancy has stopped going up. The plausible explanation we heard at first put the blame on the nation's opioid epidemic. This week came an equally, if not more, plausible explanation. The nation's obesity epidemic. A new study says excess weight led to nearly 200,000 deaths in the U.S. in 2011. The study says an overweight or obese 40-year-old in 2011 likely saw their life expectancy cut by nearly a year. Obesity rates have more than doubled in the past 30 years. Obesity is the foremost cause of type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, and high cholesterol. It's also linked to several types of cancer. After 40 years of a shrinking heart disease death rate, that decline has ground to a halt in the past two years. The progress we were making on the cancer death rate has slowed. A doctor at Cornell says it's likely both opioids and obesity that have stopped the gains we've been making toward longer, healthier lives. And quoting a New York obesity surgeon, Obesity may be tougher to treat than cigarette smoking. It's not how much Vicodin or Percocet you take after a surgery or injury. It's how long you take those drugs after that surgery or injury. A new study, the study that concluded this, involved well over a half million people who had been prescribed opioids, none of whom had a history of taking them. The study found hard numbers that 
even a first refill can double your risk of addiction or overdose. Each additional refill increases the risk by 44%. Just an extra week increases your risk by 20%. And researchers found that dosage isn't the issue. They found the risk was no greater for patients on high doses for two weeks than it was for patients on low doses for two weeks. Overdose deaths in the U.S. have tripled over the past 15 years. It was an accidental overdose of opioids that killed Rockledge and Tom Petty recently at age 66. At least opioids were part of a deadly mixture. Petty was taking medication for emphysema, a bad knee, and a fractured hip that had become a full break early in a 53-city tour. Petty had been looking forward to spending time with his granddaughter, mostly in retirement, after that tour. The legendary Elton John says he's retiring from touring after just one more world tour. John spent some time in intensive care last year, sidelined with what was described as a harmful and unusual bacterial infection he picked up in South Africa. That's when Elton John made the decision he finally announced this week. After performing on national TV New Year's Eve, singer Neil Diamond has announced he has Parkinson's disease and is retiring from the road at age 77. Diamond immediately canceled the third leg of his 50th anniversary tour with apologies and refunds for disappointed fans in New Zealand and Australia. Diamond says his singing career was an honor and he'll be honored for it with a Lifetime Achievement Award in Sunday night's Grammy Awards. Diamond says he plans to keep writing music and recording it, but the days of live performances are over. Quoting Diamond, the ride has been so good, so good, so good. South African jazz legend Hugh Masekela died Tuesday after a long battle with cancer. Masekela was best known in the U.S. for his 1968 instrumental hit, Grazin' in the Grass, but he also worked with Paul Simon, Janis Joplin, The Who, Otis Redding, Ravi Shankar, and Jimi Hendrix, who wrote a theme for Nelson Mandela called Bring Him Back Home. Masekela got his first trumpet from an anti-apartheid activist, but was influenced by Miles Davis, John Coltrane, Dizzy Gillespie, and Louis Armstrong. Masekela moved to Los Angeles in the late 60s summer of love and hung out with Peter Fonda, Dennis Hopper, and David Crosby. After 50 years of music and activism, Hugh Masekela has passed at 78. Country singer Dolly Parton has made it, meanwhile, into the Guinness Book of World Records for having the most decades with a top 20 hit on the U.S. country charts. She'll also be in the book as the female artist with the most hit songs. The Brits who published the Guinness Book went to Nashville to bestow the honors. Parton, who's 72, said having this many hits, quote, makes me feel like I'm about 100. Science fiction lovers lost a friend this week in the passing of Ursula K. Le Guin. She brought feminism into the genre and became a best-selling author of the Earthsea series and The Left Hand of Darkness. Over 50 years, her 20 novels were translated in over 40 languages and sold millions of copies around the world. Ursula K. Le Guin lived to be 88. And Rosie the Riveter passed last month, or at least her inspiration did. Naomi Parker Fraley was a factory worker at the Alameda Naval Air Station in California when she was photographed wearing her red and white polka dot bandana. That image became inspiration for the war effort in World War II and later in women's causes, including getting out the vote with the enduring caption, We Can Do It. The woman in that picture became known as Rosie the Riveter. Fraley was one of millions of women who helped at home while men were fighting overseas, but the real Rosie, Naomi Parker Fraley, died this week at 96. She'll be honored again in a ceremony in March. There appeared this week a new trend that looks like good news for the planet. 
First, McDonald's announced that by 2025, all of its packaging will be renewable or recyclable at all of its restaurants. And five years before that, McDonald's says all of its fiber-based packaging will come from recycled sources and other sources that don't contribute to deforestation. Half of Mickey D's packaging already is, two-thirds of it made from recycled materials. Ten percent of the restaurants have already started collecting recyclable materials to be recycled again. But wait, there's more. Coca-Cola says it will collect and reuse 100% of its packaging by 2030. The company says that even by then, every bottle or can it sells will be returnable for recycling. Or it could be sooner than 2030. The company already replenishes all of the water it uses in its beverages and five years ahead of schedule. Quoting the CEO at Coca-Cola, bottles and cans shouldn't harm our planet and a litter-free world is possible. Our land and water are dotted, sometimes clogged with debris from McDonald's and Coke, to name two of the biggest sources. Concerned consumers have noticed and criticized the companies for being such major sources of litter. And that concern seems to be making a difference. Look out, Peru, road coming through. Lawmakers in Peru have approved a bill that would let that government build roads right through the remotest regions of the Amazon rainforest, where native Peruvians live in peace. Isolated people, people who are extremely vulnerable, says the head of a federation of natives. Quoting Pope Francis, there is pressure being exerted by great business interests that want to lay hands on its petroleum, gas, lumber, and gold. The bulldozers arrive in about two weeks to carve through 680,000 acres of protected forest land. Toys R Us is the latest victim of online shopping, announcing the closing of 182 stores across the country. The toy chain filed for bankruptcy in September after losing business to Target, Walmart, and Amazon. Even the Toys R Us online store just never caught on. And the brick-and-mortar stores get low marks from a marketing professor who says, you can find more zest for life in a Walgreens. In recent years, people have been boarding planes with their comfort animals. There are some conditions for which this is a necessary thing, the animal usually being a dog, sometimes a cat. But in recent years, since these real conditions have been recognized and addressed, people have been boarding planes with animals they insist are necessary for emotional support. Those cute little flying possums known as sugar gliders. Gliders, but also spiders and snakes and turkeys. And that's just on Delta. Other airlines have similar curious tales. Even a dog on board as a supposed comfort animal can be risky. In 2016, a 70-pound dog bit a passenger seated next to it in the face. Animal incidents on Delta have increased by 84% in the past year or so, if you count urination and defecation, which Delta does. For a while, all it took was a doctor's note that you can even buy online declaring your, say, monkey as a support animal. Now the airline says it will need more than just a doctor's note. Other documents, a filled-out form downloaded from its website, and at least 48 hours' notice. And to be on the safe side, Delta says the support animal must take up no more space than a seat cushion. Speaking of animals, the Jumanji sequel was number one in North American theaters this week for the third week in a row and another $20 million. Strong was second with over $16 million. Den of Thieves third with just over $15 million. The Post was fourth with just over $12 million. And The Greatest Showman was fifth with $11 million. For previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please use the Fandango link 
at buzzburbank.com. The Oscar nominations were announced this week. The Shape of Water leads with 13, the second most in history. Also making news, three nominations for Jordan Peele's Get Out, including Best Picture. Peele's just the third person ever to get three nominations with his first movie. Greta Gerwig did nearly as well, getting three nominations for Lady Bird, although, unlike Peele, she was not a producer. Lady Bird, which Gerwig wrote and directed, is also up for Best Picture, along with Gary Oldman's Darkest Hour, Spielberg's The Post, and Francis McDormand's Three Billboards. Dunkirk, Call Me By Your Name, and Phantom Thread also made the list. This year's snub goes to James Franco, who didn't get his expected nomination after sexual abuse allegations, the nomination for Best Actor that was expected. Because the show runs long and because it draws big advertisers, the Oscars begin an hour earlier this year at 8 Eastern, 5 Pacific. On Sunday, March 4th, on ABC, Jimmy Kimmel is again the host. Former TV icon Bill Cosby may be facing retrial for criminal sexual assault, but he was cracking jokes Monday night at a jazz club in Philadelphia. Cosby was ostensibly there to play drums, but told an 11-year-old boy, I used to be a comedian. And then he told jokes and stories for about an hour. He did not talk about his retrial in April, in which he's accused of drugging and molesting a woman at his home 14 years ago. Cosby's first trial ended in a hung jury. He remains out on bail outside the jazz club Monday night, one protester. And 45-year-old actress Laverne Cox says she is honored to be the first transgendered person ever to be featured on the cover of Cosmopolitan magazine. Valentine's Day issue. Garbage collectors in Turkey, meanwhile, have just opened a library. In the capital city of Ankara, Turkish trashmen have found books and paintings they felt were just too good for the landfill. So they found an abandoned factory and decorated it with those paintings and stocked it with 6,000 books on shelves they'd found that were also too nice to trash. Each book was carefully inspected before it was shelved. The books are only available for a two-week checkout, although, as with any good library, you can get an extension. And the waste collectors will continue to collect wasted items they see as valuable as one man's trash becomes treasure to many. Quoting one trash man, I'm very sad that these books are thrown to garbage like bread. Our society needs more awareness. It is a big thing, he says, when one child reads one book and learns one word from it. People driving through Rancho Santa Margarita, California, meanwhile, will no longer be able to read which way it is to Bob's house. For a while, there were three of those standard white-on-green road signs that tell you which way to turn for various destinations. At a split in the highway, the signs, top to bottom, read Coto de Casa, Dove Canyon, and Bob's house. City officials noticed, of course, and removed Bob's sign. Even though it looked regulation, it was, according to city officials, illegal. The city says it has no plans to track down this Bob and admits it was amusing. So officials say Bob can come to City Hall and retrieve his sign without fear of prosecution. This time. When you're in law enforcement, sometimes the evidence just falls right into your lap or onto your road. On I-60 near Odessa, Nebraska, a package of marijuana hit the pavement. It had fallen from a flatbed trailer being hauled by a Dodge Ram pickup on a Friday afternoon. And the Nebraska State Patrol caught up with that pickup a short time later and found more than 120 pounds of pot that had been stored in a secret compartment on the undercarriage of the flatbed trailer. Well, secret at one time. 
They arrested the Colorado man and the Florida man inside the Ram. Officials say the pot, which was first found on the street, has a value of over $365,000 on the street. Documented by a doctor, a Fresno, California man found a tapeworm dangling from his rear and started pulling and stood up. Once it was out of him and dropped to the floor, he saw that the parasitic worm was about five and a half feet long. The man took it to the doctor, wrapped around a roll of toilet paper. The man says he had been eating raw salmon sushi and sashimi every day, even after a warning last year that tapeworms had been found in Alaskan salmon. The man now says he won't ever be having uncooked fish again. People love their Taco Bell, and after one burned down recently in Montgomery, Alabama, its morning customers gathered in the parking lot around the rubble for a candlelight vigil. Quoting the owners of that particular Taco Bell, we will rebuild. Bradley Hardison of Elizabeth City, North Carolina, may have a problem the likes of which we haven't seen. Police say Hardison broke into a Dunkin' Donuts last November and stole the money, however much it was. We do know how much money is keeping him in jail, a $7,000 bond. Hardison would appear to be obsessed with break-ins and donuts because he was also wanted for several car break-ins. Brad was arrested for the donut heist the day after he won a donut-eating contest that was sponsored by the police department. And finally, from the home office in Florida, police in Clearwater have arrested a man for stealing exotic fish from a pet store. The fish are worth about 20 bucks a piece. It isn't clear exactly how many it took. The man was allegedly stuffing the exotic fish down his pants and then sped away in a car. And no, he was not glad to see the police who caught up with him thanks to security video and a plate number. And it wouldn't be a true Florida file story, of course, if it didn't have an extra twist. The fish the man stuffed down his pants were never recovered. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and for supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.